From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. Digital Campus, episode 115, recorded October 2nd, 2015, The Mills is in Basel edition. Well, welcome back to uh, another Digital Campus after a long summer break and even into the fall. I'm Tom Scheinfeld at Found History. Uh, and I'm joined here uh, today with most of the cast of regulars. Um, we've got Amanda French. Amanda, hello. Hello, Tom. Dan Cohen. Hi, Dan. Hey, Tom. And Stephen Robertson. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Tom. Well, we've been away a long time, and there's a lot to talk about. Um, Amanda, you just came back from uh, a meeting that happens uh Every year about this time, the NEH-ODH, Office of Digital Humanities, uh, Project Directors Meeting. Do you want to give us a little report from uh, Washington? Absolutely. Report from Washington. Um, so I actually really love this meeting. Um, uh, it's just, it, it, they, ha- they do lightning talks, which I think is, you know, a great way to get a lot of information in a short period of time. Um, so for me, it's one of the very best ways to keep up on what is uh, new and interesting in digital humanities. Um, I, I, the trip was a bit longer than I anticipated, so I did miss the keynote uh, from Bethany Novisky, who uh, was, of course, as probably our listeners know, at the University of Virginia, um, head of the Scholars Lab down there, and she's uh, fairly recently become the director of the Digital Library Federation. And although I did miss it, um, I understood that she talked about um, the ethic of care in digital humanities. So uh, there was, uh, I think, some good reactions to it, and I'm looking forward to, to reading that when she posts it online. Uh, but so just in terms of um, uh, what I heard at the meeting, um, I, I, you know, I'm always trying to sense, you know, trends or, or, or new developments in digital humanities, and there were two that I noticed, you know, I don't know if they would stand up to uh, hard analysis, um, but... I noticed two things. One was that there seemed to be a whole lot of crowdsourcing projects, like almost everybody. That's not true, not almost everybody, but but a, a significant number of people um, were building projects that had a crowdsourcing element to them. Now, crowdsourcing itself is, of course, not new. You could call it even the wiki way, but I thought that there was sort of a preponderance of projects um, like that. Um, another uh, sort of thing that seemed a little new to me was... I think there may have been only two or three audio projects, music projects, but it's it's still rare enough to where even two or three projects in music studies um, and acoustic studies seemed uh, more than I had seen in past years. One of them was a project I thought was actually quite interesting about sort of trying to recreate the 3D audio environment of the 17th century 
um, preaching of John Donne. So, you know, could you recreate what it was like to sit in the cathedral and hear John Donne preach? You know, so not just uh, what the sermon would sound like, but what would all the crowd noise sound like? And so I thought that was really interesting. And then another one was um, something to do with sort of taking scores, printed scores, um, and if we think handwritten manuscripts are difficult to OCR, well, music scores are even more difficult to OCR and sort of process with computers. So there was um, one to do with that. So I thought both of those things were interesting. And then at the end, um, there was a panel discussion um, about scaling up digital humanities projects, which I thought was kind of interesting. And Trevor Owens, uh, former CHNMer, uh, who's now a program officer at IMLS, the Institute for Museum and Library Services, was on that panel. And the IMLS has a new sort of program um, that is basically on that exact topic. Um, it's called the National Digital Platform, and it is not actually a platform in the sense of a piece of software. It is just a sense that they want to fund projects that are infrastructural, um, you know, not just projects that um, are kind of one-offs. Um, so we talked about that a little bit. Um, you know, the audience was sort of discussing, well, how do you scale up a project? Uh, and that's, it's, a little, it's a little different thing to develop an infrastructural project than it is just to make sure you have enough users for your, your site, right? So, um, so there was a good bit of discussion about that. I mean, one thing I noticed is that, that somebody... Um, one of the, the project directors was doing a project to create a database of uh, runaway slave advertisements and that there are existing projects that have already done that. So one of the lessons I sort of took away from that is, um, you know, just that there, there are existing projects out there and that one of the ways to sort of scale up your project might be to, to just basically just aggregate things, you know, to aggregate and add to them and then incorporate a crowdsourcing component. So that seemed to be sort of the direction that people were, were going. Um, but really enjoyable meeting. Uh, always, always enjoy going there and seeing what people are doing. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned um, sound studies and, and projects that are moving into that realm. I've actually, you know, it's, it, and again, this is sort of anecdotal, but I've been bumping into more and more projects that um, that are are moving towards sound studies. I mean, I guess that's probably um, in keeping with with larger trends in the humanities. Um, but I, I just the the other day I was speaking to a, a colleague um, in the UConn Music Department who is working with sort of taking advantage of the available the like much greater availability of MRI technology and. Mm. Um, and 3D printing technology to reconstruct um, historic musical instruments, um, and you know, we oftentimes replicas of musical of of historic musical instruments don't play as well, I guess, as the as the as, as the originals. And beca it's because it's hard to know exactly how the instruments, especially like woodwind instruments, are constructed on the inside. But with MRIs, you can create. 3D models of these instruments, and you can then um, 3D print them, and you can get a pretty reasonable facsimile for you know damaged or or rare uh, historic historic instruments, or 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 build pieces that are um, 
that uh, become um, damaged over time. So like recreating, you know, we only have like a few reads from Adolf Sax's original saxophone. And mm -hmm. so being able to, so you, so you, you, you would never play them of course, because you don't want to damage them. Um, so to be able to recreate those and then actually play these, these historic instruments is, is quite a thing. So it's, so I've, I just, just one example. I've bumped into a couple others too, but that's, uh, it's an interesting observation um, and kind of resonates with, with my experience. Well, and again, I, I happened just this morning to be um, to, to visit a, a really neat space uh, on the Virginia Tech campus, which I think literally is one of the only spaces of its kind in the world. So we have a the Institute for Creativity, Arts and Technology here at Virginia Tech, and we have a nice new big art center. And one of the spaces in that center is called The Cube. And I think this is, you know, at most two years old. And what it is is basically a theater. And it is shaped like a cube, so it is, you know, tall and wide and square. And it is entirely surrounded with speakers and video phones. So you can do what is, in essence, like 3D audio. So surround sound, but, you mm. know, surround sound on steroids. And I was kind of thinking, oh, my gosh, I would really love to get that cathedral project in here, you know, and try to sort of recreate again what it's like to sit in St. Yeah. Paul's Cathedral and listen to Dunn preach, you know. Or it had all, And there was an, a mechanical engineer who was talking about, um, in fact, he was talking about 3D printing particular kinds of uh like microphone parts at that point it got really out of my depth <laughs> but you know like 3d printing you know sound equipment stuff that could could manage this it, it was all really interesting and it was a great performance space and it was clearly all um you know it was like what can we do to we talk about visualizing data all the time and he brought up the term what can we do to oralize audio data right mm. how do you how do you represent audio data in such a way that it's kind of three-dimensional. So I thought that was all very interesting. I mean, it reminds me of, of Tim Hitchcock's project, um, new project coming out of the Old Bailey papers, which is, again, another sort of 3D reconstruction, in this case, the Old Bailey courtroom, to try and get a sense of the other dimensions of the trials beyond what's down on paper. And I think that that's in some ways what's interesting to me about the St Paul's project as well is that these are almost extensions of what's already been done with this material out and in, into the into the new technologies. And so, you know, 3D buildings in and of themselves have been with us for a long time and I think in some ways never really caught people's imagination. But I think that we seem to be at a moment where combining that 3D with sound um, to add to our sense of what has been captured on, on textual sources is is opening up a, another kind of whole interesting range of projects and, and, and sort of reconstructing courtroom environments alongside courtroom documents. And this is, you know, way in my legal history wheelhouse, I think is a is a one of those things a lot like the St Paul's Cross project which has the potential to, to quite transform our sense of what's going on if you put those documents both sort of in space and in sound and so I, again I think this is a really interesting trend and I think that we'll kind of see more of it I think is this seems to be what is catching people's imagination at the moment and they can do relatively you know in a, what is now a relatively straightforward way things that weren't possible when these things first appeared. What's well, kind of interesting, too, I think, about these reconstruction projects is that they are pointing at a methodology that in some ways had been 
discredited or or ignored or or looked down upon by the scholarly profession among yeah. among historians you know i mean like you know we we look we tend as i think you know ivory tower types to look at things like living history museums um you know Plymouth plantation and old Sturbridge village and uh colonial williamsburg you know we we look at them with a with, with a with a little a little askance in terms of their methodology um and now it seems with the opportunities these, these new technologies are opening up, we're, we're trying to do some of the same things they've been trying to do for an awful long time, but maybe with a, a different emphasis. Um, but I do think that it might open up um, possibilities for more collaboration with some of those institutions, which do have a have come from a slightly different tradition, but those public humanities institutions that have a long tradition of doing this kind of reconstruction work and trying to get at historical truth through tacit knowledge as opposed to sort of textual uh, knowledge. So it's uh, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, we also, I think this week, uh, keeping with the NEH, saw the uh, 50th anniversary of, of the, of the uh, NEH um, and uh, some, some speeches and celebrations in connection uh, with that. Um, do people have reflections on uh, 50 years? I know we, I don't think many of us were around at the time, but, um, <laughs> but 50 years of the NEH and, and what it has managed to do in those 50 years. You know, Tom, I wrote a little piece on the DPLA blog um, about NEH and really how important, obviously they've been to getting the digital public library of America off the ground. But I think, if you look at their um, database of grants that they've made, and what's really remarkable is they've now digitized all this stuff and gotten it all up on a site that you can go to um, and just scan through. I mean, almost any topic that you can think about, tens of thousands of grants that have been awarded over the past 50 years, the diversity is really remarkable. Um, I think also uh, what really struck me, and Brett, Brett Bobley, the uh, head of the Office of Digital Humanities, uh, tweeted out a couple of examples of they were doing digital humanities-like stuff all the way back in the late 60s. I mean, some of their very first grants were to um, look at, you know, the use of computers and humanities. Um, and so even before the Office of D Digital Humanities arose, um, they were, in fact, making grants um, in this area. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, if you look around the digital humanities landscape and Wow, has it expanded? I mean, uh, just uh, hearing Amanda's great report from the uh, meeting uh, last week, of, um, and I love to go to these meetings where they have lots of little short um, presentations because I always learn a bunch uh, about a bunch of new projects that I haven't heard of before. Um, you can see how broad uh, the spectrum is in this field, and NEH has really been pretty key in establishing a lot of those projects. Uh, certainly, I know at the um, uh, at the Center for History and New Media, um, they were really the catalyst for a lot of that. So, um, you know, I think we all have a kind of personal and also professional uh, gratitude toward NEH, but I think more broadly what they've done, and, you know, Tom talking about the connections between digital humanities and these kinds of um, physical public history places, um, NEH really has performed that function of kind of getting digital humanities and humanities more broadly out to the general public. And I think that's always been a, a key function of what they've done. Yeah, I, uh, I love that grants database, I have to say. And, um, you know, I 
I think they are they are hoping that someone will analyze that data and perhaps visualize it, perhaps oralize it. I don't know. But I, I went and just did a little bit of looking around in 1969, uh, which was the year of my birth. Uh, so, and what what I was struck by was not only that there were a few digital projects, but um, how uh, in 1969, like the overarching trend seemed to be black studies. Just and I, I guess I would have thought that that would have come a little later. Um, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense, you know, 1968, 1969. But I was just thinking about, you know, well, is the NEH progressive or is it conservative? You can hear arguments on both sides. Um, you know, just from looking at it in 1969, I thought, wow, they really were doing a lot to um, push the humanities toward a broader understanding of what were acceptable objects of study. Um and so I, I thought that was, you know, particularly great. And it applies to digital humanities, too. You know, what are acceptable methods of study? You know, what are, um, you know, they're, they, they're continuing to um, try to reward people for doing cultural studies of, uh, you know, of the Internet, of online culture, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, there, there's no question in my mind that the NEH has, has had a large effect on my own career, even though I haven't always been... Uh, um, you know, directly funded by them. I mean, I, I was just struck looking over the 50 years of stuff at, at how incredibly multifaceted NEH is compared to the humanities funding agencies that, that I dealt with in, in Australia and New Zealand and, you know, and how much richer the humanities community is as a result of the, the incredible diversity of what NEH funds and the range of programs, um, which just, you know, the Australian Research Council program is very narrowly focused on, on, on you know, what would be covered by sort of one program. Um, within the NEH, and I think that we sometimes lose sight of that diversity. I mean, and as Dan alluded to, I think that that's certainly one of the reasons why NEH has been such an important part of the centre's history. I mean, 24 NEH grants in the 21 years of, of the centre, and that's because those grants are spread across the range of things we do here, you know, grants for public programmes, grants for curriculum, grants for research, digital humanities grants, um, and, and I think that, you know, it really is worth celebrating the range of things that happen in this country because of that that breadth that NEH brings to the table. And certainly, again, the move to digital humanities here has has come um, a long way because NEH got involved. And again, you know, if you look abroad where there's it's been much slower to get that kind of tracked funding, the same kinds of diversity of projects haven't happened. So, so you know, as unwieldy I think as sometimes federal government bureaucracies and agencies can be that the sheer breadth and diversity of what NEH is doing is is definitely something we're celebrating after 50 years. I mean, one of the things I think um, worth mentioning in this context, though, is the um, is is the and I and I agree with everything that's been said, but is is the 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 continued you almost can't say it any other way, but continued war on NEH's funding um, that has you know been going on now for for 30 years I um, you know in the 1970s uh, NEH was funded at a level in inflation adjusted dollars at about 400 million dollars a year um, by the end of the 1980s that had dropped to about 250 million dollars a year and now we're at about 150 million dollars a year and it, it's I, I mean 
it's amazing what what NEH has been able to do for that amount of money, especially when you consider that of that $150 million, half of it goes to the states, to the state humanities councils. So for the, you know, for the very, you know, relatively measly $75 million, what NEH is able to do is just, I mean, talk about bang for your buck. Um, but it's going to be hard to keep making a, the kind of bang that, that NEH has been able to make for 50 years um, if, you know, every decade the funding is effectively halved. And I think there's, a, there's an irony in, in, in the session on scaling up at the workshop that Amanda was reporting, because I do think that one of the ways that you can see that is in a, you know, the scaling down of funding that NEH gives out in individual programs and individual projects in a way that I, I do actually think is we're beginning to kind of see a different scale and scope of project than, than would be possible without that, that kind of squeezing. And, and you know, we get an enormous bang for buck. I think people are, you know, doing a, a somewhat maybe even a disservice to themselves and their ability to eke out what they do from incredibly shrinking pots of money. So, I you know, I do think we need to begin to pay some attention to the kind of project that, that NEH is not in a position to fund with the shrinking budget that it has, and you know, and I, and I haven't seen as many of the glowing endorsements of NEH that you'd like to see politically to mark the the fiftieth, um, and and I don't think anybody sees that budget turning around anytime soon. No, no. Uh, well, that is uh, the way in Washington right now, and. Uh, Keeping in Washington, uh, we had news over the summer, something that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's a little bit of old news, but I still think very important, um, is the uh, imminent resignation of uh, the Librarian of Congress, uh, James Billington, who has, you know, there aren't many positions in the federal government that are positions basically for life, um, the Supreme Court justices have nine of them, and maybe the only other one uh, that I can think of, at least, um, is the Librarian of Congress. Billington's been in there since uh, 1987, and um, he is headed out. He has been... um, He's been roundly praised by members of Congress for his leadership. He's been roundly criticized, I think, by uh, digital humanists for his his lack of vision, um, his his lack of vision, his lack of early vision and anticipating the role that digital technology would play in uh, libraries and uh, archives, um, and and then his um, continued sort of lack of. Um, of support and uh, leadership for digital initiatives at the library itself. Um, what do people think about Billington's tenure, and uh, who's going to replace him? Um, Dan, have as as the leader of a, a large digital library organization, what are your thoughts on this on this uh, turning point? Yeah, um, well, I've been asked the question a lot, and um, obviously, since I'm, I'm running an organization that has digital uh, in the in the title, um, in the name of it, uh, you know, it's I think a lot of, um, for instance, newspaper reporters who have asked me about this have um, assumed I would go straight to this digital critique, which in, in some ways I will. Um, I think everyone agrees. I don't think it's controversial to say that um, while uh, Burlington did do some things around uh, digitization and open access in the 90s, um, American memory, in fact, in uh, Roy Rosenzweig's uh, and my book called Digital History, we highlighted, in fact, the work he did starting in the mid-90s to put 
um, some millions of items from the Library of Congress online. Um, I think it's pretty clear, and again, it's not controversial to say that after that, things kind of stagnated and there hasn't been a lot of, um, or uh, as much digital output from the Library of Congress as one would expect um, for what is now, you know, 15 years into the next millennium here um, and 25 years into the web. So, um, but even though I think it's easy to go straight to this technology, what I've sort of emphasized in talking about this is you really need to look at the end goals of what the Library of Congress should be doing and what the next Librarian of Congress um, could do in the position. Um, and there, I think the technology is really just the means to an end. I think when we really think about what the LC can do, um, it is a position from which you could be, for instance, a very strong advocate for the democratization of access to information. Obviously, digital media and technology is a great route to do that, but I think it's broader than that. The um, Copyright Office, for instance, is in the Library of Congress and makes a lot of the regulations that govern what we can and cannot do with digitized content. Um, and so the Librarian of Congress overseeing that really can um, have tremendous sway in uh, the way that we're able to sort of implement these digital things. Um, so I think there has to be a kind of broader vision of, of what you want to do there, which technology is a big part. Um, I hope that the, the next Librarian of Congress will tackle um, all of those issues. I, I also think now that um, it's not that I'm sick of talking about it, but I think there's been kind of some obsessive writing about it um, in the DH community and the library community. I sort of span multiple communities at this point. Um, I've seen a lot of a lot of blog blog posts have been written, um, but I think you know it's important to also say that the, this one person isn't going to. Um, be able to change everything by her or himself. Um, I think that, uh, first of all, the Library of Congress itself, it's a big organization, it's a big bureaucracy, it's hard to sort of turn those things on a dime. There's 3,000 employees there. Um, they've lost a lot of employees. People that we know who do digital stuff um, have left in the past five or ten years, and so um, there'll have to be some, you know, rehiring or hiring of people who know how to do some um, modern um, digital things. Again, this is not, there's lots of people in the Library of Congress who are great and who do know how to do digital things, but I think there obviously have to be um, uh, years worth of work to kind of um, begin to implement some new things there. So I don't think we can place everything on this one position, but um, I do think it's a chance to at least uh, put someone in with um, a vision again that's beyond just the technology that gets into questions of of access um, and uh, um, education and other things more broadly. Again, just in addition to some of the great things that Jim Billington did during his tenure, um, which in fact related to the humanities and some of the great things that NEH has been able to do in, in terms of uh, promoting the humanities more broadly. Does anyone want to uh, get into the fun business of speculating on who's going to get the job? <laughs> Um, I'll do that, Tom. Okay. Um, so I think Dan Cohen is going to take that job. <laughs> um, you know, I've seen some speculation. Uh, I think it's it's in the news that they, uh, I don't know if they offered it to Walter Isaacson, but they were apparently um, courting Walter Isaacson, author of the Steve Jobs biography and former head of a number of large organizations. Um, and he said no. Um, I had heard John Palfrey, 
uh, Dan's predecessor uh, at the DPLA and now head of the uh, Phillips Academy, uh, Phillips Andover, I get the name wrong. Um, I had heard him mentioned, yeah, and uh, I think uh, he had... Is, is probably not going to take it. I think he's probably happy where he is. Um, I've heard some other people, uh, Susan Hildreth named, um, uh, formerly of the IMLS, I think. Uh, and um, she's, I think, not as high profile as either Paul Free or certainly Isaacson would be, uh, but she is sort of a Washington insider and knows um, from large organizations uh, like the Library of Congress. Uh, I've heard David Ferriero mentioned, uh, current head of the National Archives and uh, former head of the NYPL. Um, I think uh, that wouldn't make a lot of sense to me just because he's heading up the National Archives. And But, but Librarian of Congress is in some ways a, a, a bigger job even than that, which is already a very big job, um, primarily because of uh, the Copyright Office. And I, I understand that there are bills in Congress, I don't know how far they have gotten or will get, but there are bills in Congress to remove the Copyright Office from the Library of Congress. There are bills to limit the term of the Librarian of Congress. Um, I think it can be a, a really, uh, that, that part of this particular position makes it a, a very different one, uh, because as we all know, copyright in the digital age is a, is a sort of major thing. Um, I've heard, uh, uh, finally, you know, there, there are a few other names that have been bandied about. Uh, Brewster Kale, uh, head of the Internet Archive, was one that I heard of, too. I think he's not likely um, because he is probably a little bit too much of a radical on specifically, you know, free access to information. I think that there are a lot of uh, entrenched interests who, uh, you know, RIA and so on like that, who want to make sure that whoever is in charge of the Copyright Office is not a sort of a um, wild-eyed, crazy... Um, Silicon Valley type, um, and so I think Brewster Kale is probably unlikely, um, and and that goes for a number of other sort of Silicon Valley types of person people. I think um, someone uh, whose name I've forgotten from the Gates Foundation was mentioned, and I think that might actually be uh, fairly likely. I know the library community is very keen to get a librarian in there with actual librarian training, um, but I think that that's um, not something that the White House <laughs> thinks is particularly uh, important. Um, so I think that the White House probably does want someone with a fairly high profile, someone who has run a very large organization, someone who has some technology skills but is probably sort of a, a moderate on um, things like intellectual property. So I thought, oh, probably someone from the Gates Foundation would be about right. Because, of course, they have done a lot to support public libraries, and they have a sort of a technological uh, patina. <laughs> Um, so that, that seems like it might be likely. I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I will say I, I've heard a bunch of names as well this, uh, through the grapevine. I, I will say I think it's very likely that um, this person will be um, maybe not first and foremost, but in large part a administrator of a large organization like a university. I think it's a very high probability of someone like a college president or um, provost or someone who has dealt with a 3,000-person organization because I do think that there will have to be some sort of structural uh, advancement, including on IT, 
Um, but I think what Amanda was saying there at the end is, is probably pretty on target. Um, so, uh, you know, I also think it is interesting that I believe this week a bill did in fact go out as Amanda noted, um, uh, who knows if it won't be voted on given the Congress, but, um, to change the, the term of the Library of Congress to 10 years. Um, that, that's probably not a bad idea. I mean, I think anyone, I mean, myself included, over time you get a little crusty and you kind of may, might yeah. lose some sight of some uh, new things that your organization needs. And so, you know, having someone in for close to 30 years um, in an organization like that probably isn't a great idea. Um, but, um, again, I, I'm not sure that that will go through. And... I do think we should underline that um, it is the Library of Congress, and Billington did have a great relationship with Congress, the, the Congress, and after all, a big chunk of those uh, 3,000 employees at the Library of Congress work in the Congressional Research, Research Service and are there to serve the Congress. And so um, I think that's kind of a missing piece as we look at some of these things like technology. There's there are other vectors here that need to be assessed for who might be um, put into a position. But, um, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll have someone there who can, um, you know, make some advances that will be really helpful for um, digital humanities, digital libraries and museums, um, open up some more data streams, um, you know, get, get the digitization um, going a little bit faster there. I think there'll be some things that will be very helpful uh, to all of us. Um, I think regardless of who comes in. So I am looking forward to that. Does anyone want to discuss whether the Copyright Office should be moved away from the Library of Congress? I think it'd be a really bad idea because it, you know people are talking about moving it to something like Commerce and um, as it is right now, um, at least in it, it sitting in a library means that, for instance, librarians have more say than they would if it was. I mean, already it's, it is large commercial entities that have tremendous sway, in fact, over copyright um, and uh, openness. And so I think it's a very powerful statement to, in fact, have it in the Library of Congress. And I, I think it would be a huge, huge problem if it was moved out of there in terms of um, – uh, the effects of lobbying and, and things like that. I mean, and I do think in some in some respects, um, having it in the legislative branch rather than the executive branch, um, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why the the dysfunction in the legislative branch is bad. But one of the one of one of you know one of the reasons for it is because it's things are supposed to go, move slowly. Um, at least that's the way that the Constitution is is organized. And um, I do think that having it in the executive branch would make it probably more subject to political tinkering and interference than having it in the legislative branch where thing you know things 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 are crazy but they're not there there you wouldn't have a situation where a new president could come in and set an entirely new sort of policy agenda for for the office in the way that you know i mean obama has been criticized for doing with the epa or something i don't necessarily agree with those critiques but but there is a certain amount of executive authority in the in the in in the in the executive branch and in the president um that kind of is is at least dispersed um in in the legislative branch so i think to that extent, it's probably a good thing as well. Well, I'm sure we're going to 
revisit this uh, topic when a, a new librarian is uh, nominated and we'll uh, be talking about that uh, at a future date. Uh, moving out of Washington, 15 miles to the west, um, we saw coming out of uh, the George Mason University History Department this week uh, the approval of a set of digital dissertation guidelines. Um, we've talked about various guidelines for tenure and promotion um, that have been put forth by recently by the AHA uh, and other organizations. Um, this is, uh, George Mason has been uh, for a long time um, a leader in uh, digital humanities and digital history, and this is uh, a step into that that arena for, for, for Mason. Um, outside of the of the the Center for History and New Media and in its parent organization, the the history department there. Um, Stephen, do you want to tell us a little bit about those guidelines and how they were passed and the discussion that took place around them? Sure. So this is the work of the department's graduate committee um, and mainly the work of of Sharon Leon, um, the director of public projects here in the center and also a faculty member um, like I am in the history department at Mason, um, and she's written a blog post which we'll put in the show notes talking about how she went about putting these together. Then they circulated around those of us who teach digital history in the department amongst the graduate students, and, and these guidelines are, are very much in response to the fact that we have a cohort of graduate students coming through Mason's history PhD program who are looking to do a digital dissertation in some form or another and, and really were asking for some guidance on what that should look like. Um, and what I think is kind of interesting is that when we talked about the AHA's guidelines, one of the critiques that we made alongside a lot of other people was about the kind of vagueness of what they were asking for. And I think part of the value of these guidelines, which you can find on the Mason History Department website, and we'll put that link in the show notes as well, is that they provide a little bit more of a concrete framework. Um, the the graduate committee worked, you know, quite carefully to make sure that these, you know, that the the core framework for these dissertation guidelines are the same as applies to any dissertation that a Mason History PhD produces. Um, and then within that framework to frame the kinds of things that a, a digital dissertation particularly has to address. Um, one of the things that we talked about a little bit when it came through, which I think is also really important, is that there is a, um, a kind of core need in there that candidates demonstrate the fit of the core technology that they're employing and the formats that they're producing the dissertation in with the questions and the scholarly goals of the project. And, you know, I think we're sort of used to thinking about DH in those kinds of terms, but, but I think spelling it out explicitly that this is kind of uh, digital because it needs to be digital, both in terms of the, the questions and the material, um, is a kind of key foundation for what these guidelines are trying to do. There's, uh, I think, a, a, an important stress on taking accessibility into account, making it a priority, attending to Section 508 guidelines and thinking about this. There's a key um, stress on sustainability in there. And, and one of the real questions that, that these guidelines are, are sort of intended to help us begin to talk about more is exactly how the library where all the Mason dissertations have to be deposited is going to handle a digital dissertation um, and that's certainly one of the answers to sustainability is that these um, dissertations are supposed to end up in the library and, and this framework gives us something to continue to talk to the library about. Um, and then beyond that the basic structure that Sharon and the committee developed was to sort of set out 
um, a framing structure for the dissertation, that it have both a framing introduction and a self-reflective discussion of the project development process, um, and then that it, the dis it kind of imagines these dissertations in a kind of modular format. Um, again, keeping some of that openness that, that is, is a necessity here, I think, but at the same time trying to um, imagine something a little bit more concrete um, and potentially in that modular way, um, not necessarily linear um, or or chronological. It also kind of marks out a, a, a possible hybrid um, dissertation that uses digital methods but still produces um, something that we would recognise as a traditional dissertation manuscript alongside it. Um, and I think that as we've got more students beginning to use computational tools of various sorts, um, that's a dissertation that, we, that we're that we going to see and we have a couple. In fact, the first likely digital dissertation is probably going to be a hybrid dissertation, a project that involves a large amount of digital mapping but still a, um, written up in a more traditional dissertation format. So there's kind of a recognition of, of that kind of um, mix going on there alongside it. So I think these were worth showcasing because I think this is we're often asked whether we have digital dissertation guidelines, and, and it's going to be very nice to be able to say yes, <laughs> we do, um, and and you know and that we do because in fact we also have some students who are going to be producing dissertations within this framework within the next couple of years, and, and that's certainly going to be something to to watch out for. But then I think it also does open up some other kinds of questions to ask about the AHA guidelines and and how how digital dissertation guidelines need to articulate or not with the sorts of guidelines that the, that the AHA has put up for tenure and promotion, which is where at least some of these digital dissertations will go. Um, and so, so again, you know, it would be interesting to see how people react to this, what they do with these kinds of things, and, and in most in particular what our students here at Mason do, because there's some really interesting stuff in the pipeline um, that this will hopefully help the students begin to imagine um, more concretely what they need to do with those projects to have them jump through all the hoops that we ask of dissertations. So, Stephen, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you mentioned sustainability yep. of these projects. And, you know, so I'm, among other things, at, in Virginia Tech, I'm running the Institutional Repository. Yep. Um, and we've got, like, 45,000 things in there, almost half of which are theses and dissertations, mm -hmm. some of which go back, you know, a long, long, long way. Yep. And... I guess I'm, and I've been thinking a lot about sort of website preservation and archiving. There was actually sort of a discussion about that at the Maryland for Institute and uh, Maryland Institute for Technology and Humanities a while ago. Like some of these projects from even you know ten years ago and some some of the '90s projects are basically like no longer live websites, and you can package them up and put them in an institutional repository like the one I'm running, but it's not the same <laughs> at all and it's not it's it's a whole degree of difference um compared to you know some typed dissertation that has then been scanned and put into pdf that is fundamentally feels like the same thing so i guess i'm just a little curious to hear more about how you guys are planning for 50 years from now and will future scholars be able to read these dissertations and um, if they are online. Yeah, well, I mean, what we're planning is to work with the library and the institutional repository to see how we can do that. So what the guidelines uh, include them at the moment is just um, 
a kind of, if you like, get guidance to the students that they need to be talking about to the library about a migration path for their projects into the institutional repository. Um, and we've had a lot of preliminary discussions with the libraries about this, but this is exactly the challenge we face. I don't, I'm not entirely certain how many of these projects are going to be websites per se. Um, I mean, mm. I think what's interesting is that a lot of these digital projects are, are a little different from what we were you know, imagining a while before that there's going to be a lot of data elements. There's certainly going to be some kind of interface elements built into them. Um, but really we're waiting, you know, by necessity for some, for some of these projects to emerge to, to, to begin to work out what's going to be involved in getting them into the institutional repository because it's the same here at Mason. All the PhDs are in the institutional repository. In fact, these days, at the moment, they're almost all that's in the Mason Institutional Repository, and that's definitely where the digital dissertations are headed as well. But I think that it's it's really is going to be, um, you know, a matter of seeing what what the students produce and then and then working on how that gets into an institutional repository. And and I think that's always going to be somewhat of a moving target. I think we're in a better situation for for knowing where to think about going with those kinds of questions than we were a few years ago but but we don't we haven't set anything up we haven't got anything to migrate yet um and so it's a matter of simply making that part of the process in these guidelines making talking to the library about what a project involves and how it might be migrated to the institutional repository and the data repositories that that are part of that as well as i'm sure they are where you are and 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 how to think about the different components so so we don't have we haven't got some master plan in place what we've got in place is a process to open up those conversations and, and an awareness of some of the challenges um and now we wait to see what it is that the students submit and 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 everybody i think then begins to grapple with what we do with it I just think it's really great to, to see this go forward, and I think there'll be a lot of programs across the country and indeed around the world looking at um, how this evolves. I think the preservation question is a great one that Amanda points out, and I think partnering with the library um, seems like a, a good way forward on that. And there are archival formats for this kind of thing, you know, and, uh, you know, the Internet Archive is really good about making its... Um, formats and web crawlers and things um, available. So you can create sort of a, a web archive of a website, you know, to the extent that there are some. Um, but it's, 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 it's not well explored territory yet, I think, for a lot of institutional repositories in particular. Well, we'll look forward to seeing the dissertations, especially, that come from those guidelines uh, in the coming years. Um, that's probably it for us for today. Uh, we're glad to be back. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll welcome Mills back from Europe next time on Digital Campus. Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Thank you.